Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Cardiac arrest management encompasses early identification, basic life support, advanced cardiac life support, and post-arrest care. The etiology and complexities of cardiac arrest warrant further exploration of certain medications. Medications that include vasopressin, steroids, epinephrine, calcium chloride, and sodium bicarbonate, all of which may help achieve return of spontaneous circulation and improve patient survival. Here to drop the beat on pharmacotherapy and cardiac arrest is Dr. Hannah Brockmeyer, a critical care pharmacist at Mayo Clinic. Attention, attention, medical alert, code blue, Domitilla 2, room 923. As you rush up the stairs to the large crowd of healthcare workers and the team is already going through your typical ACLS algorithm, you're assigned the role of preparing medications. You slide open the drawer of the code cart and immediately you put together a syringe of epinephrine. You're then being asked for one milligram of epinephrine every three minutes on the dot. The internal medicine resident is serving as the code leader and he calls out, does anyone have any other thoughts? And as you're putting together the next syringe of epinephrine, you take a second to look at the other wide assortment of medications available in the cart. So what are other options and considerations is there outside of our traditional ACLS algorithm? When could we use them and when should we make you consider them for patients? So let's fast forward to after about 60 minutes, the team works vigorously together, follows your ACLS algorithm, and the patient achieves ROSC or return of spontaneous circulation. However, there are numerous factors that play in between ROSC and the patient leaving the hospital with a good neurologic outcome. So how can we as healthcare workers utilize what we understand about the pathophysiology of cardiac arrest and really optimize patient outcomes even before ROSC? So today we're gonna to review the pathophysiology behind medication targets during ACLS. We're also gonna to wanna to differentiate how vasopressin, steroids, and epinephrine can be optimized in managing cardiac arrest. And finally, we're gonna be able to recognize how adjunct agents could be beneficial during ACLS and what evidence would support their use. So let's take a step back and review some of the basics of cardiac arrest. We have our two basic categories of rhythm with shockable and non-shockable, and we recognize that patients can present with either and even flip between them. Another consideration when we examine closer today is how the environment that the patient is arresting in can really impact their outcomes with the two being out of hospital and in hospital cardiac arrest. This is something important to keep in mind when we're interpreting our study data today. We're also gonna focus a lot on medications that we use for cardiac arrest, but I do wanna take a second to emphasize that shocking shockable rhythms, performing uninterrupted and high quality CPR and identifying and appropriately managing underlying causes are really the true keys to good outcomes for patients. As we recognize the basic differences in our cardiac arrest populations, how do our outcomes compare between them? So this graph, it looks at a few statistics provided from our American Heart Association, with our red bars representing out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and our blue in-hospital cardiac arrest. 
One thing I want you to take a note of is that overall, all survival to discharge is a lot lower in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Now, this is really not surprising when we consider the amount of resources we have in the hospital and really the difference in response time from the moment the beat drops until compressions are started. A breakdown of the differences between our initial rhythms between the two groups really further emphasizes this point because a higher number of patients are typically found in PEA arrest during in-hospital cardiac arrest, where reversible causes are more likely to be identified. And we have a higher number of those in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest initially presenting with asystole, which is thought to be a rhythm you see later on after patients have been with a non-sustainable life rhythm for a longer period of time. Overall, what I really want you to take away is that the challenges uh, associated with presenting an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and non-shockable rhythms. As we reflect on the likelihood of survival with cardiac arrest, let's go back to our patient case scenario and really break down what's happening. So by definition, during cardiac arrest, our heart is stops beating and is no longer able to appropriately pump blood to the rest of our organs and perfuse them. So with chest compressions, we are physically keeping the blood flow to help perfuse the heart and brain. We're also providing respiratory support to try and make sure that the blood that's circulating is oxygenated. And outside of the keys I mentioned earlier, being high quality CPR, defibrillation when needed, and thinking about and treating our underlying causes, what are some other mechanisms that we could provide direct support to our coronary arteries to help support the heart get and get itself functioning again? One key way we can do this is through augmenting our coronary perfusion pressure. So coronary perfusion pressure is the pressure gradient that's responsible for coronary and therefore myocardial perfusion, and that ensures myocardial oxygen delivery. This becomes especially important in cardiac arrest because you're in a high distress and oxygen demand state. And lack of perfusion to the heart is allowing more and more time for the myocardium to die as the lack of oxygen damage outweighs our delivery. So what exactly is CPP? CPP is determined by our aortic diastolic blood pressure subtracted and with the left ventricular and diastolic pressure subtracted from it. But why is this? If you think about how the heart is actually perfused, we have both our right and left coronary arteries that are supplying blood to the heart. And when our main heart muscle, being the left ventricle, is relaxed in diastole, the coronaries are in an open state and therefore increasing flow and perfusion. So if you look at the equation, a low pressure in the left ventricle can increase our CPP. It's also worth noting that these coronaries do branch off of our aortic root. And so, and what happens is that if you have our pressure driving from the aorta can help really matter when you're looking at our CPP. And so when we increase our SVR in the aorta, we then increase our aortic diastolic pressure and therefore CPP. It's worth noting that having an adequate CPP has been associated with the likelihood of return of spontaneous circulation during ACLS. One way to do augment aortic diastolic pressure would be through the use of epinephrine. Epinephrine acts on the alpha-1 receptors of the vasculature and increases our systemic vascular resistance and therefore blood pressure. And it's very effective at increasing our CPP. However, we know that this is not epinephrine's only mechanism of action. And the beta-1 effects of epinephrine can lead to an increase in heart rate, contractility, and automaticity. Depending on the cause of cardiac arrest, this could be problematic 
as we've seen how an excessive amount of catecholamines and a catecholamine surge could induce or worsen arrhythmias. Another thing to think about is when we revisit the importance of balancing our myocardial oxygen demand and delivery, and increasing the workload of the heart could potentially cause our coronary artery oxygen supply and demand to become imbalanced if an excessive amount of epinephrine is being given. One way to augment what epinephrine is doing is through giving vasopressin. Vasopressin in times of low perfusion is released from our posterior pituitary gland and increases our blood pressure through two mechanisms. One of these is through direct agonism of the V1 receptors on the vasculature, increasing our systemic vascular resistance. And the other is through V2 receptors working on mostly the kidney to increase our water absorption and our circulating volume. When we recall what we've seen in like vasopressin and other diseases like sepsis, it also has the potential to reduce our catecholamine requirements and maybe help stimulate the cortisol secretion. So let's take a brief pause here and review. So let's say you're the healthcare provider and you're responding to a code blue. And when you arrive, you see that the patient's in ventricular fibrillation and you find yourself in charge of the code cart and giving medications. The team asks for one milligram of epinephrine. So how does epinephrine administration benefit the patient? So does epinephrine increase your coronary perfusion pressure? Does it work on our beta-2 receptors to restart the heart? Do we think that giving epinephrine increases contractility or here, do we want our patients to have a decrease in coronary perfusion pressure? And so what we're really looking um, out of epinephrine here is really we want the alpha-1 agonism action to increase our coronary perfusion pressure. Here, our goal is not necessarily to restart the heart, and we wouldn't expect that at the acting on the beta-2 receptors to do this. And so our overall goal is to really not increase contractility either, but increase our coronary perfusion pressure. Interestingly enough, in the early ACLS guidelines, the recommendation was that a vasopressor should be administered every three to five minutes. And while epinephrine is commonly used, it was reasonable to consider giving vasopressin to replace the first or second dose of epinephrine. And note that vasopressin has a half-life of about 10 to 20 minutes, meaning that the duration might be a little bit longer than epinephrine. And so giving it so frequently may not be as helpful and the onset could be a little slower. So what would happen is patients who had a prolonged period of rest and got vasopressin initially ended up getting both anyway. So this recommendation stayed consistent until 2015. Vasopressin was removed and epinephrine took place as the sole focus. But this was not due to the harms of vasopressin or the superiority of epinephrine. But really, it was to allow for simpler guidelines and for the focus to be on our keys of ACLS that I discussed earlier leaving epinephrine as the sole vasopressor of the guidelines. Before I get into specifics, as much as I'd like to tell you today that all the studies we're gonna talk about are double-blind randomized controlled trials with equivalent populations controlled for all the confounders, that's really not gonna be the case. The challenges with studying cardiac arrest literature include an inability to adjust for a lot of confounders, the wide variety of patients you're going to be studying, recognizing which outcomes are important to assess and if they're meaningful, and really the most important piece is that there's a lot happens that occurs between return of spontaneous circulation and survival. So today we're gonna to understand that the population itself is challenging and that study results may not be the end all be all. As we recall, and up until the 2015 ACLS guidelines, it was reasonable to consider vasopressin to replace the first or second dose of epinephrine. 
And a few studies examined this practice early and compared the results to just sticking to epinephrine alone. Our first study in 2001 for in-hospital cardiac arrest saw that there was not a difference in shorter to long, short or long-term outcomes of survival with giving one dose of vasopressin up front compared to epinephrine. In 2004, we have an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest study that looked at patients who either got two doses of vasopressin followed by epinephrine or epinephrine alone. And this was then more thought to be a true combination because everybody in the vasopressin group also got epinephrine. This study did find an increase in survival to hospital admission and an increase in discharge from the hospital. However, this finding was not replicated in a much larger study about a hospital cardiac arrest patients. And so overall, I would say that the results are not consistent and is further research warranted. So things to think about are, is there a benefit to specifically using these two combined? And should it be we use them in combo to overall decrease your catecholamine burden and amount of epinephrine? Are there other maybe properties of vasopressin that we could harness, or is there a missing piece to this combination? Outside of our direct effects on the heart and the CPP, what are other big picture targets that we should be thinking about during cardiac arrest? With this massive inflammatory response during arrest, and we've got tissue ischemia, inflammatory marker release, there's the thought that giving an anti-inflammatory could also dampen this response, improve our metabolic and hemodynamic arrangements. And we think about how in steroids and sepsis, there's potentially a benefit in patients who may be relatively adrenally suppressed after this profound stress response. The augmented release of stress hormones associated with vasopressin could also enhance our myocardial function and prevent an irreversible circulatory collapse during CPR. But one consideration to make is when we think about the direct half-lives of epinephrine, we have a fast onset and short half-life. The onset of giving something like steroids, including methylprednisolone, is going to be closer to 30 to 60 minutes, and that benefits be more in this next step after ROSC. Several studies that have looked at what happens after ROSC have found that those patients who achieved ROSC had an elevated levels of vasopressin and ACTH. This was seen in an animal study and then replicated in some adult studies of 34 patients and again, 60 patients. I would say there's two very different schools of thought here. Are the, high horm are the hormone levels high in patients that achieve ROSC? Because during arrest, were they able to perfuse their brain and release some of these hormones? Or are these levels low in patients that failed CPR and had an inadequate response of their HPA access to this magnitude of hypoxemic stress associated with cardiac arrest? and could potentially exogenously replacing these hormones lead to better outcomes. There was one group of researchers in the mid-2000s that set out to take a closer look at this combination of giving vasopressin steroids with epinephrine and their outcomes in cardiac arrest. The first study that looked at this was a single group of researchers at a single center in 2009 that looked at 100 patients with in-hospital cardiac arrest. Now, in this study, and I'll draw your attention to the graph on the right, that those who those researchers typically followed ACLS algorithms for the guidelines of that era. However, in addition to that first dose of epinephrine, patients were either given 20 units of vasopressin or placebo. And with that first dose, they were given 40 milligrams of methylprednisolone placebo. After that, every single time an epinephrine was given, Patients were also given 20 units of vasopressin or a matching placebo up to five times. 
If the patients achieved ROSC and had some kind of hemodynamic compromise with a low mean arterial pressure, those in the VSE group were randomized to continue with hydrocortisone 300 milligrams for a maximum of seven days and then a taper or a matching placebo. I would also like to emphasize that the majority of patients in this study did present with a non-shockable rhythm, but were a witness of rest. I'm also going to discuss at the same time a larger multi-center study that was conducted in a very similar manner, but looked at almost 270 patients. These patients in this study had similar baseline characteristics, with about 80% being a non-shockable rhythm and about 90% of these arrests also being witnessed. So I'm going to take a second to orient you to this chart as the results of these studies, the outcomes of these studies were very similar. And so we're going to discuss the results together. And so here in the lighter blue, we have the VSC 2009 single center study and the 2013 study is in the darker blue. And so here we see how significantly more patients did achieve ROSC in the VSC group in either trial compared to our control group. The epinephrine dosing in our VSC was very similar in 2009, but we used one milligram less into the 2013 trial. However, I would like to call attention as we look at the large drop-off of patients who achieved ROSC and who actually survived until discharge. And we also see that that wide difference um, in outcomes between groups, that gap closes a little bit as we look at survival to discharge. It's also worth noting that in the 2013 group, patients specifically were assessed for not only survival, but for survival with a good neurologic recovery. So after the results of the VSC trials took, which took place, there was a group in Denmark that set out to conduct a very similar study protocol. So this was a multi-center double-blind randomized controlled trial that looked at um, giving epinephrine and with that first dose, methylprednisolone plus vasopressin or matching placebos. And then after that first dose of methylpred, they were given vasopressin with every epinephrine dose or placebo for up to four times. And I would say one thing worth considering here is that giving steroids in those that achieved ROSC with hemodynamics instability was not a part of this protocol. But similar to our other studies, 90% presented with a non-shockable rhythm and about 75% of these arrests were witnessed. Like our previous two trials, this study found a significant difference in ROS favoring VSC. However, this was the only outcome that was found to be different. There was not a difference in epinephrine requirements or survival at 30 days or overall survival with a favorable neurologic recovery. And similarly here, we do see a drop, up in, drop off in those that achieved ROSC and those that survived a discharge, although this difference is less pronounced than our previous studies. There's a few other study details I do wanna pull out here. And so for our VSE group, one thing that the authors drew specific attention to was that those who did worse arrested overnight where high quality CPR was delayed and those who were not eligible for defibrillation or have a reversible cause identified did worse. It's not surprising that in those that got VSE therapy ended up requiring less vasopressors after ROSC and had an improved MAP because they got steroids and vasopressin. There was also a much faster time to drug administration in the earlier VSC studies, since anyone could give the drug. But in our 2021 Denmark study, there was an emphasis of study personnel having to give the drug, and the time to drug administration was a lot closer to eight minutes. I also want to mention that the authors of the 2021 study posted a video 
of the process of reconstituting and giving all of the drugs for VSC. And it took them about two minutes per dose, which could be the full time of one person during a cardiac arrest. Other considerations for the 2021 study are that it did not replicate our survival benefit that we saw earlier. However, these trials were only powered to assess return of spontaneous circulation rather than other outcomes such as survival. This group also did not con continue the steroids in the VSC group and those that did achieve ROSC. So when we look at these trials side by side, we see that in the 2009 and 2013 study, the VSC therapy looked a lot better than our standard of care for survival. However, this was benefit was not replicated in our study that was published in 2021. However, if we look at what this would compare to our USA um, outcomes here in the United States, at these same time points, we can consider that our, prevent, our percent for overall in-hospital cardiac arrest survival that neither VSC or the standard of care really compares to what we were seeing in these studies. And so it's hard to extrapolate what this therapy would look like here since it wasn't really replicated at other centers and seems to be worse than our standards of care during these timeframes in the US. So I'm curious after what we talked about what your opinion is. So let's say you respond to the code blue on the general cardiology floor. And when you arrive, you recognize that your patient's in ventricular fibrillation and receiving high quality CPR. Which of the following would you recommend for your patient for pharmacotherapy to accompany defibrillation? Would you recommend epinephrine, one milligram every three to five minutes? Would you wanna do epinephrine plus vasopressin? Or would you consider epinephrine plus vasopressin plus this first steroid of methylprednisolone? And so overall, my thoughts and what I would pick is I would do epinephrine one milligram every five minutes. And what we've seen is that overall pharmacotherapy does not compare to our more important emphasis on giving early defibrillation, high quality CPR, identifying and treating underlying causes. And something as complex as VSE could be a distraction from these therapies that are true key outcome, true keys to good outcomes. I would say overall though, that the pathophysiology of VSE is super intriguing. And it's worth that I have a few remaining questions after reading these studies. What is the exact role of each component? Do they all need to work together? Is there an impact in our time to first dose as we saw more significant differences in our earlier studies where the drugs were given faster? Is something like vasopressin able to reduce our epinephrine requirements as we only saw this about one time during all three of these studies? But could this combination be more beneficial for something like a shockable rhythm as we recall that in our studies that patients mostly were represented with a non-shockable rhythm. And is there a necessary benefit of post-arrest steroids and did that make the difference in our earlier studies between the later? And should we do post-arrest steroids in all patients? How long should we do them for? And what would be a good dose for giving patients? Now, as you sit here, the thought might be running through your head so what was the big push in the guidelines to removing one drug when epinephrine was really never the clear-cut winner? And are we oversimplifying cardiac arrest? But I'm going to ask you to recall the feeling of you're running to the patient's room and you don't know the scenario, or you're being the very first person to realize your patient's not responsive and having to call for help and start CPR. In high-pressure situations like this, things really start to turn to muscle memory. And it takes a really well-working team of healthcare professionals resuscitating the patient to the best of their ability to give them a chance at achieving and sustaining ROSC, let alone having a long-term outcome like survival. 
Also a thing to think about is after you press the code blue button at 1 p.m. on a Thursday, you're gonna have a surge of help that's going to come. But what would happen if you are in a bystander at a grocery store? Are you an EMT responding to a welfare check? Or maybe you're the only nurse responding to a floor of patients at the community hospital. Even consider here the difference between our response personnel from afternoon to evening to overnight. How many healthcare professionals need to get ACLS certified and recertified? And so while our ACLS algorithm may be to a degree oversimplifying a very complex process, I think of them as more of a foundation to help really direct our focus on the high impact therapies in a high pressure situation. So let's go back to our patient scenario and say everybody in the code is calling out for multiple drugs at the same time. And you look in your med drawer and this is what you see. So how, what else is in our code cards? How could it help patients? Should we give it to somebody or are there specific scenarios where it could be beneficial? As we think and talk a lot about reversible causes today, this mnemonic may have come to your mind with our H's and T's. A few of them that I'll call out are hypovolemia, hyper and, hyper and hyperkalemia, having a tamponade or thrombosis. And so while the focus in cardiac arrest is really to maintain perfusion through CPR, shocking shockable rhythms, while gathering information to recognize what is at the heart of the problem here and treat it. So we're first gonna look at another medication that has the potential to increase our systemic vascular resistance, which is calcium chloride. Calcium works by acting on our actin and myosin chains to induce vascular and cardiac muscle contraction. But another thing to think about with giving calcium chloride is you might be responding to a patient on the floor who only has peripheral IVs and giving calcium chloride is not without harm. As you can have significant tissue necrosis that could occur if extravasation does take place. And there is another possible but not well-studied caution with calcium use here. So right now we have a typical cardiac myocyte with our normal electrolyte regulation. But during cardiac arrest, what's happening is your oxygen demand is far outweighing your oxygen supply. And we recognize that even as we attempt to ventilate and oxygenate our patients, ischemia is happening and we have a decrease in our ATP production. And as our body really starts to shift towards anaerobic metabolism. This can throw off our, name, our normal electron regulation and you start to have an accumulation of sodium inside of our cell. This requires one of our transporters to actually start to work in reverse and we have an increase in calcium movement into the cell. There's the potential thought that something like this can cause calcium overload as it builds up in our sarcoplasmic reticulum and it can potentially impact our mitochondria and call mitochondrial overload. So the thought is also that when reperfusion is restored and calcium is potentially released, that can, this can lead to something like a hypercontraction and myocardial site that's really likely fragile from a prolonged ischemia. And giving something like exogenous calcium could theoretically make this process worse. So while not recommended by the ACLS guidelines for routine use, there's a few randomized controlled trials that have looked at giving calcium chloride. And so in 1985, there was a group that looked at giving this for refractory non-asystole um, an algorithm in patients without a hospital cardiac arrest. They did not find a difference in roster survival but did find that those who responded well seemed to have a wide QRS complex, which could represent something like hyperkalemia. 
1985, there was another trial that looked at patients with refractory asystole and out of hospital cardiac arrest. They did not find a difference in roster survival either. There was a much larger study that took place more recently and saw that ionized calcium levels were associated with ROSC, but again, there's no difference in survival between two groups. Thank you for your help. One recent randomized controlled trial that looked at giving calcium administration, this time an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, took place in 2021. And so what happened here is that the intervention consisted of, after the first dose of epinephrine, giving up to two doses of calcium chloride or saline, IV or IO. And so here, what we saw is that patients in the calcium chloride group had a, a target achievement of ROSC of 19% and it's not surprising, had more hypercalcemia. However, those in the placebo group had a ROSC achievement of 27% and since they weren't getting calcium, did not have as much of an incidence of hypercalcemia. One thing I really wanna call out here is the difference in good neurologic outcomes really favored the placebo group, which led to the early termination of this study. Finally, this I think speaks to how challenging it is to enroll patients in out-hospital cardiac arrest studies. As the number one reason patients ended up being excluded is that, the, is that the study personnel simply forgot to enroll their patients as they were so busy with the ACLS algorithm. So overall, I would agree with the current guideline recommendations. that calcium may not be for all patients, but there are certain situations such as like a hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia, and certain kinds of toxicities that may um, have be benefited from giving calcium during cardiac arrest. Another medication we're gonna talk about in our code card is sodium bicarbonate. And so overall, during cardiac arrest with a lack of perfusion, you do see a shift from anaerobic metabolism with the buildup in your acidotic state and increase in lactate, which leads to an acidosis. Also with those with respiratory failure, you do have CO2 accumulation that can also cause respiratory acidosis. This effect is thought to compound as time goes on during the cardiac arrest. And sodium bicarb is often given to shift our normal or pH back to a, norm, a more normal physiologic level. However, when we give sodium bicarb, recall this equation and that eventually we can actually increase the production of CO2, which would then um, become problematic, especially if we have poor ventilation or when you give a bolus dose and the lungs are unable to catch up and reduce the CO2. There's a theoretical thought that while you have a rapid increase in our extracellular pH, that the CO2 will diffuse into the cell and you're actually gonna have a reduction in your intracellular pH. So there's a few trials that have looked at giving sodium bicarb, mostly in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. An early 2000 study saw that giving sodium bicarbonate did not impact outcomes. And although the article refers to sodium bicarb improving survival rate in those patients who, had, who underwent CPR for over 15 minutes, a reanalysis of this data shows that sodium bicarb did not improve survival, but those who underwent CPR for over 15 minutes were just twice as likely to receive sodium bicarb. Another smaller study looked at specifically at patients who had CP, underwent CPR for over 10 minutes with a pH of less than 7.1 and found that sodium bicarb did increase our pH, but there wasn't a difference in rascal survival. Another study looked at giving sodium bicarb that was much larger in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. What they did find is that it increased our survival to ED admission, but there was no other 
impacted outcomes, including survival to discharge. A large retrospective study sought to figure out when sodium bicarb was being given and what could be an impact of that as an outcome. And so this study was now in hospital cardiac arrest at a single center, and they looked at patients that had a blood gas taken within 10 minutes of compression, compression starting. And so while this study did not report our total bicarb dose or our time to lab draw, it's worth noting here that the average time to administration from compression starting and giving an amp of bicarb was less than four minutes. They did find that those with a pH of greater than 7.8 when the bicarb was given had a decrease in survival, but those who underwent CPR for over 20 minutes that giving sodium bicarb may have increased our neurologic recovery. I would say, especially with this first result, that it's worth noting that this could be an incidental finding. But I think that one thing to think about is how quickly these patients were given sodium bicarb and maybe was this, was this kind of delaying and distracting from our other things that we should be focus on, focusing on during cardiac arrest. Finally, another very recent retrospective study looked at the impact of giving sodium bicarb during in-hospital cardiac arrest. And now this is different from our out-of-hospital cardiac arrest because this, this group of patients, everybody got sodium bicarb, but they were separated out into if they were presumed pre-arrest to have an acidosis based on the bicarb on their BMP within 24 hours, or if they were presumed to not have an acidosis before they arrested. This was a single center study of about 225 patients. It's worth noting that there was not a difference in ROSC between patients who had potentially a pre-arrest acidosis and those who did not. The study didn't also found, found that not giving bicarb early versus late did not have a difference in outcomes either. And it's worth noting that our time to administration was slightly faster in those who were thought to be acidotic before arresting compared to those who were not. And so with our final question here, I'm curious to know, which patient scenario would you be more likely to administer sodium bicarb during cardiac arrest? Do you feel that all patients should receive sodium bicarb? Do you think that a patient who is suspected to have an overdose of an unknown substance could get sodium bicarb? Would you like to give it in a patient who's arresting for over 20 minutes? Or would you consider giving it in patients with potential hyperkalemia? And I would say that was definitely more of an opinion question than anything. And there's not necessarily a right or wrong scenario. And there maybe was a few scenarios that you thought about giving sodium bicarb to your patients. But again, here I would say that giving sodium bicarb could be reasonable to give to some patients, um, especially potentially when you're doing CPR for over 10 to 20 minutes or you have a pH of less than 7.1. But there's other scenarios like hyperkalemia, potentially um, a toxin overdose, such as a tricyclic antidepressant or some other kind of sodium channel blockers like an antiarrhythmic that maybe giving sodium bicarb would be, would be um, beneficial, but it's probably not for all patients is what we've seen from our studies. So my biggest take home points for you is really that during a cardiac arrest, we use epinephrine more for its vasopressor action to really increase our perfusion to the heart. And while the combination of vasopressin, corticosteroids and epinephrine together is really interesting, that at this time there's inconclusive evidence to support its use. And the outcomes in the studies were worse than what we've seen in the USA. Finally, adjunct agents do have their role in certain situations, but they are not for everyone and they should not distract from what we've seen to show a survival benefit, including CPR, defibrillation, and solving the underlying problem. 
So after today, what I'm really challenging for all of us to do is the next time that we resuscitate a patient to cardiac arrest is not just to think about restarting the heart, but what we can really do at each step and widen our horizons to consider how earlier, why is this patient arresting? How do we achieve and sustain ROSC? And really, how can we best bridge the gap between the second their beat drops and our overall outcomes of the patient? If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.